Not enough new entrants, a lack of accountability, too many modifications to existing contracts, and not enough new awards. The Veterans Affairs Department got an earful from House lawmakers last month over its IT contracting habits. The trends highlighted by the Government Accountability Office and House Veterans Affairs Committee members were not necessarily surprising to VA officials, but still worrisome. Federal News Network's Executive Editor Jason Miller joins me to tell us what VA is doing to change the way it manages and works with contractors. And Jason, give us the top line on what the GAO and the Congress members found about VA contracting. What they found was that annual IT obligations increased to about $4.2 billion from 2017 to about $6.5 billion in 2021. But the number of companies receiving those awards actually fell by more than 50%. So dollars are up by $2 billion, companies down by 50%. Now, GAO also found about half of all of VA's IT obligations in 2021 only went to 10 contractors. That's up from 45% in 2017. And more broadly, about 75% of all VA IT obligations went to about 30 contractors. Tom, we're talking about 2021 data because 2022 data is not quite available yet, but GAO does expect similar results. Now, on top of this limited use of contractors, GAO says VA is also awarding fewer new contracts, but issuing more modifications to or task orders on existing contracts more frequently. And this is part of their concern from House lawmakers about the lack of accountability around contractor performance. And I think that's part of the reason why VA's CIO isn't approving every IT contract as required by law. And I think that's also of concern. So a lot of things that are happening around the way the VA is spending their money for IT. And I think that's playing into what we're about to talk about. All right. And you found that they are actually changing their approach in how they work with contractors? Let's be clear, Tom. This change has probably been in the works for some time. A hearing that happened a week or a week and a half ago doesn't all of a sudden force an agency to change their entire approach to contractors. So I don't think it's a one-to-one, but I think they probably maybe pushed VA to move a little quicker. And VA CIO Kurt Delbeni says the goal of this new approach is to create more of an integrated team where contractors and VA employees, as he says it, live in sync and operate in a shared team. We are moving into a world where if we do an RFP, for instance, we will define that first nugget, that MVP, and say the first milestone, that first thing you will deliver to us is that MVP, and then we'll see that it meets the actual need. We'll then iterate, make sure we get it to that place where it is set, and then we'll scale it out from there. And then all those optional tasks past that, we're not actually committing those dollars until we actually see that the system is the system that we, we think is right. Delveni says that this is the VA is the second now big agency to really say in the last few weeks publicly, we're going to step away from this quote unquote big bang approach when it comes to federal technology projects. Now, Tom, again, this is not uh, surprising, but I think the fact he is coming out and saying this is really what's significant here. A second change is focused on small businesses and new entrants. Now, Debeni says this iterative or agile approach will actually help these firms show what they can do for VA. We'll get in, into situations where we'll give them a small piece of work and say, show us what you can deliver here, because there's a lot of innovation that goes on with smaller contractors, but that if they can prove themselves and then scale up and do more and more with us over time. The gist is thinking very differently about contractors thinking of them as integral parts of our team that are peers of ours, but then keeping that that evaluation going and having those engagements, particularly with their leadership, to make sure that they're doing the right thing for us, and then changing the kind of projects we drive so that there's less of this big bang, more of that build success upon success. And we think if you take those things collectively, it'll increase our success with projects in the VA. 
this change isn't actually 100% new. Delbeni says VA has already begun some of this in a contract vehicle, specifically out of the chief technology officer's office, where small businesses can prove out against these small task orders. This is actually happening today. So I think they may have used this as, I'll call it a pilot for lack of a better word, but to show, hey, we can do this. All right. And then the other question that GAO and the Congress people brought up was the idea of accountability. And is this change going to just lead to more oversight of contractor performance so that so that VA has accountability to its overseers and the contractors due to VA. This is amazing how that goes up the line and back down the line. Yes, you know, indeed. As, as they say, certain things flow downhill. And I think Del Benny has the accountability built into the small task order approach within his office and within each project team. One of the things we've done is we have a clear set of OKRs or objectives and key results, both at the OIT overall level and within each of the individual teams. The idea is every team knows what are their key objectives and it's, it's done by semester for us. And so we'll have a spring semester and we'll, that something will end about June and then another one that ends in the fall and we'll define a set of OKRs, things we want to make progress on over that six months. And that can tell us, like if, the, if there's a particular OKR within a team, we're not making progress, we need to work harder on that particular team. Now, as Delbeni and VA goes through these small task orders, these MVPs, if, the, if his office finds that there are problems, if they're not meeting their goals, these the vendors, he actually has asked vendors to, hey, swap out those three or four or five people and bring in a different three, four or five people working on a specific project because this is not working for us. Now, there's also several other tools VA has to ensure contractors are meeting their requirements. We use FATAR as one way to do that, um, by whether we approve a contractor being used for a particular project. But we also do root cause analysis on every issue. We identify places where contractors are not actually performing well, and we make sure that we document that for future use and remediate against it. And I think that's really key to kind of upping the game for contractors, generally speaking. We also do this on a, on a regular basis to have meetings with contracts, et cetera, but nothing can beat that, hey, get them in the room, get them on the call, let's, ha- let's problem solve together and, and resolve that. Again, Kurt Benny talking about increasing accountability, but also increased partnership with contractors. And despite the myth busters and everything else going on in the FAR, Delbeni has come under some criticism about his willingness to meet with vendors and how they're handling ethics waivers for Delbeni and other executives. Tell us more about that one, Jason. This began with questions and a briefing in April by Delbeni and VA Special Counsel Michael Waldman. House VA committee lawmakers, both majority and minority, wanted more information about those ethics waivers that VA has issued for Delbeni and how he has recused himself from specific interactions with his former company, Microsoft. Now, Devaney was an executive vice president at Microsoft for about eight years before coming to VA, and there's some concern about does he lean too heavily on Microsoft products or not. Tom, that, it's it's hard to say whether that's true or not, but I think there is some concern about what, what VA's process is. And at the time, VA actually told the committee they don't have a good process to, to manage and oversee these waivers, and they need to put a system in place. VA Chairman Mike Bost actually wrote to VA Secretary Dennis McDonough just la- earlier this week, asking for an update about this new ethics and recusal system when it will be ready. Now, at the same time, we have to be clear that there's some in the federal community, I've heard this over and again, that Delbeni is maybe too selective of who he or his team meets with. And given the goal to change the nature of contracting, I actually asked him how he plans to change that perspective. The scale of the organization means I get a lot of emails and a lot of inquiries about wanting to sell services or sell products to the VA. It's impossible for me to meet with everybody. Every single mail that I get, it goes to our strategic sourcing group. 
that then looks to see who's the right person within the VA to triage this and figure out if there's a need. And so we've really kind of made sure it's a fair, a fair playground in that in or playing field in that regard. There are some places where a particular contractor we've got we have a book of business with them, and there's some issues. And I want to and so when they reach out, I say, yeah, I actually would like to meet with you because I have some I have some issues I want to work out with you. Or by the way, I'd like to understand where you're going. And I do a lot of those meetings, but I also meet with a lot of smaller contractors along the way as well but I can't meet with everybody, but I wanna make sure we get everything triaged to make sure that that goes to the right place. One other note that I think we should make sure we highlight is Delbeni did encourage vendors to use something called the Pathfinder program. This lets contractors submit either unsolicited ideas or come in and show VA how to use certain technology in a safe space, a sandbox, if you will. And sometimes there's a contract that comes from it, sometimes it doesn't, but I think it gives those vendors that opportunity to show VA what they can do. And I think that's really what Delbeni and his team is trying to get to. We want to know more. We want to understand more. And we want to create this team environment. Tom, it's a big sure. change for VA in many ways. We'll have to see how it goes. Big change, big agency, big dollars. Federal News Network's Jason Miller. As always, thanks so much. My pleasure. And be sure to check out his reporting at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman with 
bring down to this little shanty that we lived in. She would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters, who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were illiterate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations, but you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me, I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to 
be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an wow. audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sasulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbored no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with a correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story, and it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort of I, the I way that I kind of see all of that. You that's know? brilliant. <laughs> And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.